Man, I love that. Wow, God. And it's my pleasure to welcome you today for the third message in our series, Wow, God, wherever you're making your connection with us. Across the nation, around the world, through Church Online, or right here in South Florida at Gable's campus, Kendall campus of Christ Journey. As pastor of Christ Journey, it's my privilege to welcome you and let you know that we are praying some wow from God into your experience today from his truth. Now, I want to start um, with something that may seem a little random, but I want to ask you, can you guess what these six images all have in common? Lint chocolate, hidden pictures from one of those highlights magazine, a toy transformer, the beagle at Miami International Airport, proton cancer therapy, Miami Cancer Institute, and uh, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. What do those all have in common? Answer, each one offers more than what meets the eye. Each one brings more than what meets the eye. Lint chocolate, for instance, dark chocolate is the best, by the way. It has this hard exterior, but once you bite into it, oh my goodness, you discover a smooth, creamy interior, which you didn't know was there. Why? Who knew? Well, there's more than meets the eye. Those uh, hidden pictures that you see in Highlights Magazine at the doctor's office, you know, they present as one single picture, but actually they've got a lot of little pictures inside like you can see right here. There's a peach, there's a cupcake, there's a flower and more. We don't have the time to go into more today, but you know what I'm talking about. That toy transformer, it looks like a truck, but who knew? In reality, it is Optimus Prime. And I know a four-year-old grandson that can show you how that works if you need a little help there. Proton therapy at Miami Cancer Institute. Let me tell you, this sophisticated imaging treatment precisely targets cancer without unnecessarily, without unnecessarily injuring or damaging the tissue surrounding the tumor. It's amazing. It cuts away the tumor, but nothing else. And behind that bed is a bay that is separated by a wall of this massive proton machine. Who knew? But none of that meets the eye, but it's all there. And then the beagle. The beagle at Miami International Airport, maybe he sniffed around on your stuff. You know, he's a nice, friendly little doggy, but what you can't see is his amazing ability to sniff out contraband for the United States Border Patrol, Customs and Border Patrol. Who knew? And how about this one? Messiah, Jesus Christ. More than meets the eye. You can't tell by looking, but God is up to something more than what meets the eye. I mean, at first glance, when you first look at Jesus, God's Messiah, he does not appear to be the remedy that you need. Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet makes this conundrum very clear. And let me just give a heads up today. We're entering into some heavy, deep space. So I'm gonna invite you to stay with me as we let prophet Isaiah unwrap this Christmas gift for us. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, a root out of dry Ground. Remember that stump we talked about? A seed from a stump? 
He had no beauty in him, no majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So he doesn't look the part of a messianic hero coming to the rescue. Isaiah 52, verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up. He will be highly exalted. But then look at this. Just as there were many who were appalled at him. How can you be lifted up and appalled by at the same time or appalled at him at the same time? His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man. His form marred beyond human likeness. And so he will sprinkle many nations. What's that talking about? More than meets the eye. It's a reference to his function as a priest and sacrifice for the world. And kings, those in authority, will shut their mouths because of him. Verse 3, chapter 53. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was familiar with suffering. That means he was scorned. Like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Wow, God. I mean, what, what meets the eye is not immediately desirable. It is not immediately embraceable. In fact, he says it's kind of repellent. And yet the gospel says the same thing when Jesus shows up. You barely open the gospel of John and begin reading the story. And verse 4 says, in him, speaking of Christ, in him was life, and that life was the light of men, and that light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it, didn't get it. Didn't see it. Verse 10, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. It's just like Isaiah said 700 years before in his prediction. And this is also a passage, by the way, we've been kind of tracking with Handel, George Frederick Handel, as he wrote that masterpiece, musical piece, The Messiah. He puts this to music too. Isaiah 53, verse four. We considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. The person in Isaiah 53 appears to be jinxed by God. I mean, not only is there nothing to attract us to him, there's actually what you see makes you want to keep your distance. How does that work? And yet, Isaiah says, it was for others that he would suffer and sacrifice. Chapter 53, verse 4, surely he took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. And did you know that prediction came hundreds of years before the Persians had even invented crucifixion or the Romans had perfected it? And yet we see this reference. He was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him by his wounds. We are healed. Just want to say, wow, God, Wow, God, who knew? This is way more than meets the eye. 
Actually, what some of the backstory is, there was the temple system of sacrifice involved animals in ritual substitution by which human sin would be acknowledged and displaced, transferred, transferred to the animal. Leviticus chapter 16 on the day of atonement, verse 20 says this, the priest was to lay both hands on this goat, the head of a live goat, and then confess while his hands are pushing down, he's speaking out loud, confessing over it all the wickedness, all the rebellion of the Israelites. All of their sins were put on that goat. It was a visual transfer. And then it said, he shall send the goat away into the desert. And uh, that shows a separation of the people's sins from the people. So, God is removing the people's sins from them in a transfer that involves a verbal confession, a visual transfer, and then the displacement of the sins of the people as the goat is led into the wilderness. Now, John's gospel, first chapter, says this. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's a similar transfer. And actually, it says it twice in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Look, the Lamb of God. And the first thing upon hearing that, that Andrew does, one of the guys listening in, it says, verse 41 tells us, the first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found, what? The Messiah. The Messiah, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Why? Because in Christ, Messiah had come as the lamb of sacrifice to take the people's sins upon himself, transfer them off of uh, the sinful and onto the spotless. And the lamb of sacrifice also became the priestly instrument through which God's kingdom would come into our world, into our lives. And about that, John would, get, would again later write this. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus The blood of Jesus, God's son, purifies us from all sin. Now, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. A lot of people in our world doing that these days. But And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and he will forgive our sins and then purify us from all unrighteousness. First John 2, 2, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world. This is like, wow, God, who knew? I mean, this, next, this is sure not what I thought a cure for sin would look like. How about you? It's not what I was expecting in Messiah. Certainly wasn't what they were expecting. And yet the New Testament book of Hebrews shows how in Messiah, in Christ, God fulfills the story that was told by the priestly sacrificial system that God told Moses to establish. All those decades, centuries that it was in effect, God was teaching something to the people. And in fact, that system was in place until the time of Christ. And then when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem, as Jesus predicted would happen, It was never reinstituted. Why? Because in his body, Christ fulfilled every requirement of justice. He suffered every punishment of sin, and he did it as a human. 
The sin was transferred to him and taken off of us. And he did it as a human who could die. And he did die, which is the consequence of sin. But he also did it as infinite God. Now here's where we're intersecting Christmas once again. The God who loves us so that the infinite nature of love was expressed in the precise moment even as judgment was being done. Now how, think about this. How can justice, true justice be done when your offense is against an infinite, of an infinite nature, it takes on an infinite nature. When your offense is high treason, or rebellion against an infinite God. Now this is oversimplified shorthand, but here's what I'm thinking. In order to be fair, because justice must be fair, either a finite must pay infinitely, which would involve some level of eternal sentencing, or an infinite could pay finitely which is what happens in the Messiah at the cross. In the temple system, every morning, every evening, here's part of the infinite being foretold. Every day you need this. A lamb would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And Isaiah chapter 53, verse seven, the prophecy of Messiah, God's servant, Isaiah says this, he was led like a slam, a lamb, excuse me, like a lamb to the slaughter. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. So Christ would die for the sins of others. This is the whole point. Sin's penalty would be paid by a life given, but God chose to provide the life in himself. The sins of a whole world, your world, my world, our choices, others' choices foisted upon us, the sins of the whole world were transferred to Christ, Jesus who died as the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. This is what the first believers declared. Simon Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, made right with God. How? By his wounds, you have been healed. You were like sheep going astray. Listen, this is almost a verbatim quote from prophet Isaiah chapter 53 that we're focusing on. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him, on Messiah, the iniquity of us all. And then Peter says this, now you have returned to your chief shepherd, to your over, the overseer of your souls. Christ died for our sins in our place so that we would not have to suffer the punishment we deserve. Now theologians call this substitutionary atonement, substitutionary atonement. And Peter says, this is what God said would happen in Messiah, according to prophet Isaiah. Chapter 53, verse five, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace 
was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. One dies for the many. Now, this idea is not unique to scripture. You know this. Anthropologists, archaeologists have told us this. They have discovered evidence of sacrifice that has been found in ancient cultures. Human sacrifice. Leading some modern philosophers to conclude that this whole idea of atoning sacrifice is an idea that would best be left in our ancient past. That God, the whole idea that God is some kind of bloodthirsty tyrant demanding sacrifice, you know, is just too unsophisticated for our day. Maybe you relate to that. I can resonate with that. I mean, surely they go on to say we can move beyond such sanctioned violence in the name of religion. And of course, they paint God as some kind of cosmic child abuser that uh, is demanding that his own son die in order to satisfy his anger. How could that be love, they say? And of course, you know, that sounds pretty convincing. But what I want to tell you is that in my view, that is a horrific misrepresentation and misunderstanding of the Trinity. Here's the deep theology right here. The same God, the same spirit God that reveals God's self as father, as son, as spirit, as one. It's one God, not three gods. One God revealing God's self simultaneously in three persons. Now, this is a profound mystery, but it is at its heart is one God. One God giving himself for you, spirit as father in son, for you, displacing just sentence from us by taking it on himself like a lightning rod, just drawing and absorbing the charge fully in himself, which he could only do authentically, he could only do authentically for us by becoming one of us. Which means, here's the bottom line. If you're a bottom line thinker, here it is. God became human so he could die. This is what Christmas is all about. Why Christmas? God became human, yes. Why? So he could die. Now, is God in favor of human sacrifice? No. Listen, God is in favor of himself being the substitute taking atonement for our sin. That's the the gospel message. Is God a bloodthirsty tyrant from some savage human history from which we need to evolve? No, no. God is so deep. He is willing to meet us all the way deep into the heart and soul of our problem. God goes deep into your invisible spirit, your emotional soul, your physical body through which you present to the world, all the way deep into the dark recesses of human sinful nature. That's what's going on here. Some deep thinkers agree. We got a problem. It needs a deep solution. Dostoevsky says this, there are things which a man is afraid to tell himself 
And every decent man has a number of such things stored away in his mind. You've heard of Edgar Allan Poe, the horror writer. Here's what he said. The scariest monsters are the ones that lurk in our souls. You know the story of Frankenstein? Frankenstein's creator, Mary Shelley, author Mary Shelley says this, there is something at work in my soul which I do not understand. Mark Twain, who's often known as a humorist, but I'm telling you, he had a deep philosophical side. He said, you know, people, everyone is like a moon. Everyone is a moon and has a dark side. His shows up in his life too. Shakespeare said in his play, Julius Caesar, he asked Cassius say this, the fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Now, what are we to do with the fault is the question. And here's God's answer. I will take that upon myself. I will do for you what you cannot do for yourselves. Is God in favor of religious violence? No. In fact, he's deconstructing it at the cross so that it will never have to be done again. Christ was crucified once for all. This is the Bible teaching. Did you know that, uh, that in the land of Ur, where Abram, the father of the faithful, came from, they practiced human sacrifice? Archaeologists have found digs showing this. As did other ancient cultures, blaming and scapegoating one on behalf of others dates way back in human history. I mean, to the point of death. Blaming and scapegoating someone else to the point of death is, was a practiced part of our ancient history. Archaeologists have found evidence of it, they say, in cultures in the ancient Middle East, Europe, China, India, Central, South America. I think that just about covers it, doesn't it? Did God make us this way? No. No. But God is saying, if that's the way sin has taken you in its perverted path, then I will meet you there. God did not set up the scapegoating mechanism as his idea. It has been active in human, this fallen tendency in humanity from ancient of days, this tendency we have to shame and blame someone else and then somehow make them responsible and make them pay instead of ourselves. But in Messiah, God is saying this. Here's what I'm hearing. God's saying, deal me into your game of perverted, of twisted justice. I will meet you there. Wow, God. Who knew? We started it. He said, I want to finish it. Wow, God. That's more than meets the eye, do you think? God does not sacralize violence. He is deconstructing it. And in Christ, the practice of ritual sacrifice ends once for all. The temple is done. 
This is the great gift of the Christ event. A contemporary comedian said, you know, all religions are the same. Religion is basically guilt with different holidays. That kind of sounds clever, right? Kind of sounds smart. As, as if human religion somehow created human guilt. You know, I disagree with that. I, I'm not sure that's accurate. I think there's more there than what meets the eye. What it does look like to me is that human history has given birth to human religions that are really trying to construct a way of dealing with guilt. So religion has tried to respond to the guilt question that we bear. But in fact, secularists have done the same thing. I heard psychoanalysis described one time as confession without absolution. You know, the question is, what are we to do with our guilt and our shame, with the more than what meets the eye inside of us? What are we to do about it? What can we do with our guilt, our fear, our shame? It's like, wow, God, this is the question, isn't it? Yeah. And here are the possible answers. Number one, you can deny it. Self-deception seems to be a national pastime these days, doesn't it? We dismiss facts about ourselves that are incomparable with how we want to see ourselves or, or incompatible with how we want to see ourselves and uh, find someone else, which is the second one, actually. That's we blame. We can deny it or we can blame somebody else. We scapegoat them. We somehow make them responsible for our problems. This is like Lucy in the cartoon with Charlie Brown. She's got her hands on her hips. And this is what she says. You, Charlie Brown, are a foul ball in the line drive of life. You are in the shadow of your own goalposts. You are a miscue. You are three putts on the 18th green. You are a 7-10 split in the 10th frame. You are a dropped rod and reel in the lake of life. You are a missed free throw. You are a shanked nine iron. You are a called third strike. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Have I made myself clear? There's no shortage of Lucy's in our world to remind us of what we aren't, what we haven't been, what we will never become. You want to talk about a Grinch that steals Christmas? Let's talk about scapegoating blaming and shaming. And a lot of us do that in response to guilt and fear. Deny it, scapegoat it, blame somebody else or what? Or receive what God says, the God of Christmas, the God of Easter, the God of Jesus, our Messiah. What does he say? He says, you're special to me. You have significance. You matter to God. Yes, you have sinned. Let's tell the truth. You need forgiveness, but that's why I have come in Messiah as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief to enter your shame and your suffering and take it upon myself and displace it from you. I will become the infinite scapegoat for every finite crime, 
every finite sin. And then what does he do? He conquers it and then offers healing and freedom as part of your Christmas gift. Have you received the gift of Messiah? I'm telling you, it's a lot more than meets the eye. How do you do that? Let yourself believe. Let yourself believe God's explanation for your deep troubles. Why Messiah? Why all this? Why this way? Well, I'll tell you why. So we can stop denying our problem, so we can stop blaming others and scapegoating, and we can start receiving God's love and sharing that gift of good news with others. Would you pray with me? Gracious Almighty God, we humble ourselves before you in awe of the profound mystery of life, of the even more profound mystery of eternal life as you took on a body, infinite spirit God, our creator, our father, entering into our story and entering into our shame and entering into our suffering that you might die. This is too much. but not too much to receive. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for the deep meaning of Messiah. And we pray you would apply the healing and freedom of this truth to our lives and our families and our futures. And friend, if you're with us today and you, this is your moment, you just know somehow this is resonating with something deep within you. God is inviting you into personal relationship. You can enter that right now with a simple prayer like this. Lord Jesus, I believe you love me. I believe you came to open the way that I might experience God's love in me and for me. So thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for rising from the dead and now I invite you by your spirit to come alive in me. And as I turn from my way to go your way, I invite you to lead me into the future you have for me. In your name I pray, amen.